Good evening, sir. This new interface is tricking me up. Yeah, they have the internet on computers now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are now in the off-season officially from Purdue football and Purdue basketball, so we're going to go back to the Let's Get Weird sports podcast. Uh, this is the semi-regular series that I, myself, uh, Travis Miller of HammerAndRails.com, have done with Paul Banks of the Sports Bank up in Chicago, and it's just basically touching on some of the stranger stories that you come across in sports. So we are back. We'll have a couple more of these here in the off season, and just consider it another piece of the wonderful Hammer and Rails podcast network. With me, as always, on these is Paul Banks. How are you tonight, Paul? Doing good. You are a media mogul, Travis. I am the king of all Purdue sports media. That's I cannot be stopped. <laughs> as you said, it's been a while since we've done one of these. You said, what, it was February, middle of February that we did one? Yes, our last one was the Northwestern basketball point-shaving one, and that was on February 19th. And yes. We yeah we do these to, to fill the gaps in the off season. Um, the college sports calendar has some downtime for sure, and just you know, um, as man cannot live on bread alone, we like to diversify our topics and to get. Let's get weird sports. Give us a great opportunity to to delve into those. Absolutely, because uh, we definitely have some very very interesting topics. Some of them are not always uh, directly related to Purdue. Some have at least some relational stuff, like the Northwestern one being in the Big Ten. And others are just flat-out flat weird, like when we talked about the Rube. Uh, and this one that we have tonight is one of the more interesting ones, and it is, in fact, directly related to Purdue. And we will be talking about Purdue's first football head coach, Albert Berg going all the way back to the 1800s here. How familiar are you with uh, Albert Berg, considering that this was 132 years ago? <laughs> well, I have not seen his 30 for 30 yet. <laughs> well, we, we've got to go back uh, to get some really, really deep ones here. And Albert Berg was only Purdue's head coach for one game. Uh, this was during the 1887 season, which lasted all of one game. Uh, not quite Rutgers versus Princeton, where they played the first football game 18 years earlier, and then Rutgers proceeded to do absolutely nothing for the next 150 seasons. Uh, <laughs> they got that going for them. <laughs> but they do have that first game. And let me tell you, having gone to a game at Rutgers, when I went to the Purdue-Rutgers game two years ago, they let you know that it was the birthplace of college football. <laughs> Don't they have like a giant plaque in the uh, basketball arena because the basketball arena sits on the site of it? I'm not sure. I didn't get over to the basketball arena. But yes, they, they let you know it's all over their stadium. It's part of their video intro and everything else. So they are quite proud of that fact. And... I think that they should play Princeton this coming season as part of the 150th anniversary, but I understand losing to an Ivy League team at home would not be a great look. <laughs> yeah, they really should, though. I mean, I know that would that would just be demoralizing, but, I mean, come on. <laughs> 
we're we're not here to rip on Rutgers. We're here to talk about Purdue football and Albert Berg, who would have just celebrated his 155th birthday a few weeks ago. <laughs> Born April 16th, 1864. Uh, he was a pretty solid college football player very, very early on, and he was born in Lafayette, Indiana. His mother died when he was an infant, so he never really knew his mother. He eventually worked up, and when a group of students at Purdue University formed the school's first football team in 1887, he was hired as the coach. As you know, when these programs now have a coaching opening, they always look at win-loss records, you know, how have they done, did they do a great job rebuilding a program or whatnot. Uh, Would you like to take a guess as to how he got the job all the way back in 1887? Um, Well, I actually did, I I did cheat on this test. I did, um, or no, I didn't cheat, I just studied. (laughs) He was the only guy in the area who knew anything about the game. (laughs) That's correct. He was 23 years old at the time, uh, so not much older than a you know fifth-year senior would be on some of these teams today. And as his uh, page says, he was the only one in the territory with any knowledge of the game. And by the way, he was also deaf. <laughs> so not to say that that's a bad thing or anything, it's just quite the unusual thing that you look for in a coach. Um, it would be very difficult for a coach to be coaching major college football today while deaf. But uh, he contracted spinal meningitis as a boy, and that rendered him deaf. And so he ended up at the uh, Indiana School for the Deaf for nine years as a student. He later enrolled at the Columbia Institution for the Instruction of the Deaf and Dumb, now Gallaudet University, which I believe you said that you have a connection to Gallaudet, don't you? I absolutely do. This um, We're making history here as this is my first uh, media appearance in support of, of my book, which came out yesterday. And it, it's just the circle of life coming here because my mother's book was published by the Gallaudet University Press. And it's a book about the story of her school on the southwest side of Chicago where they brought in... 15 classes of deaf and hard of hearing children. And it's the story of the conflicts and the uh, friction that existed between the hearing kids and the deaf kids. And then it's about integration and it's a very uplifting title. It's called all of us together, the story of inclusion at the Kinsey school. You know, as soon as I became aware of Mr. Albert Berg here, and I saw Gallaudet, I'm like, oh, well, Gallaudet is the school for the deaf. And it immediately, you know, brought me to the story. So it, it's amazing how life interweaves all these crossroads together, isn't it? Oh, yes. It is, it is interesting to see that. And I know Gallaudet is one of the top, if not the top, uh, institutions of learning for people who are deaf or high, hard of hearing. So that's great. And I also know here in Indiana, the Indiana School for the Deaf is also a really, really good school. It's located near the Indianapolis or the Indiana State Fairgrounds, and they always have a big fundraiser by having parking on their athletic fields and everything during the state fair. And it, it's a big thing for the school, and and uh, just it does a lot of good. And it's always good to see that even though they're 
their uh, programs are here in the IHSAA, and they compete with the uh, regular schools in the High School Athletic Association, but they also compete in a lot of national tournaments for basketball and football and everything else and usually do pretty well. So Now, in terms of when it says that the instruction for the deaf and dumb, in a medical sense, dumb, does that refer to impaired speech? Am I correct with that? I, I believe so, yes, because, well, this was the 1800s, and <laughs> they they weren't exactly uh, the most politically correct when it came to terms of describing illnesses or anything. So, well, uh, yeah, we'll get to that with our good friend uh, George Aid of Rostate Stadium in a bit, for sure. Yeah. So uh, Berg, he graduates with a bachelor's degree in 1886. Uh, he was a halfback and captain of the football team there, and he later stated... In passing and kicking the ball, he was considered exceptionally strong. So he ends up coming back to Indiana and coming back to the Lafayette area where he was hired as coach and he was paid $1 for each lesson that he gave to the newly organized football team. But he only had a week to prepare for the first game. So he's having to teach a sport that is still very, very much in its infancy, uh, prepare his team to play its first game, and he has basically a week to do so. <laughs> so the, remember, remember, kids, that's not a week to prepare for your game next week. It's one week to prepare for the whole season. Yes, for the whole season and to learn the sport. <laughs> As he spoke about the game, uh, he recalled how his condition impacted his coach. Uh, first of all, we need, we need to talk about the game itself, I guess. Purdue would play Butler College, now Butler University, uh, at Athletic Park in Indianapolis on October 29, 1887. Butler, who already had a pretty well-established program at this point, wins the game 48-6. to uh, That would end the 1887 season, and Purdue would get beaten so badly that they would not field a team again for two years in 1889. So it automatically canceled the 1888 season. <laughs> Uh, and then that is where we go to columnist George Aid, who, famous newspaper columnist, the Aid in Ross Aid Stadium. He actually was there and wrote on the game. Uh, he described the loss to Butler as, quote, <clears throat> a low comedy production of the Custer Massacre at Little Bighorn. It's super politically correct. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and the thing is, yeah, this is 11 years after the Little Bighorn. <laughs> That's the crazy thing about it. The Little Bighorn at this point is the, oh, yeah, that happened a few years ago. Okay. Was he like the Ann Coulter of the age or something? I, I honestly don't know. Uh, he noted that the deaf Berg had been given, quote, the unenviable task to take charge of the halt, the lame, the blind, and the perniciously anemic to imbue them with stamina, courage, and strategy. So um, I think he just called him a poor recruiter there, if I read that correctly. He's like, hmm, let me hit every single disability category that I can get in one sentence. I shall, uh, I, even, I shall even poke fun at those who do not have red blood cells carrying oxygen to their tissue correctly. <laughs> he needed to find a way to work in tuberculosis, honestly. You know, now that I think about it, the fact that like anemic, has that's pretty commonplace today. Kind of messed up in itself. It's like... Like, I mock you for not having enough iron in your diet. Or, you know, <laughs> it, it's almost like uh, Arthur and uh, Dutch 
decrying the Pinkertons in Red Dead Redemption 2, which is still set later than this. It's um, it's the like season one South Park, the football announcer there. Oh yes, which oh goodness, we probably shouldn't mean that because I know we shouldn't mention that because I know there's no FCC, but we would probably get fired from our podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't say we were going to quote it. I just said it reminded <laughs> me of that guy. So uh, Berg on how his uh, condition later impacted his coaching. On account of my inability to hear and my ability to talk only to only a limited extent, and on account of the game being practically brand new in this part of the country, my instruction was mainly by imitation of my own playing. And the way they caught on and improved upon it, it would have it would have encouraged and delighted any coach. So at least he saw some positives. But unfortunately, his hearing disability also impacted his ability to actually speak. Another account doesn't really state who gave this account, however. Um, Berg's coaching consisted of, and I quote, excited sign language, some rather bizarre sounds from his throat, which his players correctly translated as pure profanity. So he was just uh, Rex Ryan. <laughs> he was just 1887 Rex Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Without the foot fetish, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I should note that this is the point where Juan just goes, dot, 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 move on. So we'll be moving on from that. He managed to type that into our little uh, Skype chat here. Um, Juan is a doctor, so let's follow the doctor's orders. Uh, yes, exactly. So uh, that ended his extremely brief coaching career. However, uh, he would go on to have a very, very good career for himself. Uh, He would serve as an architect's apprentice with the YMCA and the Chicago Stockyards up in your uh, area. Yeah, outside, baby. (laughs) He also coached briefly at Franklin College in in, uh, South Central Indiana and later at Butler. Uh, he returned to his high school alma mater in the late 1880s and became a school a teacher at the Indiana School for the Deaf and taught there between 41 and 45 years until he'd retired in 1830, or 1933, which is pretty impressive. Later got his Master of Arts from Gallaudet in 1895 and delivered his thesis on labor and capital to an audience that included President Grover Cleveland. Wow. I'm not sure if that was first term or second term uh, Grover Cleveland or if he gave uh, the speech on two non-consecutive appearances. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it says here that uh, Grover Cleveland fell asleep during Berg's presentation. He was talking about economics, and it is called the dismal science for a reason. Yeah, and that, that is from Deaf Heritage, a na- narrative history of Deaf America from Jack Argannon, Jane Butler, and Laura Jean Gilbert. Berg would later become an advocate for the deaf. He lobbied for better pay for deaf teachers. He wrote several books, served as an editor for The Silent Hoosier, and published Who's Who of the Deaf. He also served li- sold life insurance, mostly to the deaf, and reportedly oversold one mil- sold more than $1 million uh, in policies. So that's pretty good. He had one hell of a life after his brief coaching career. He preferred not to be remembered as a football coach. He wrote his own bi- his own uh, autobiography, which I guess that would be the definition of an autobiography when you write it yourself. Yes, that's how these things work. Yes. <laughs> From my reliquary of memories, he wrote, 
Many years ago, my picture appeared in, believe it or not, in newspapers all over the country as the deaf-mute football coach at Purdue. Friends in distant cities sent me the clippings from their home newspapers. Each football season, papers here and there presented something about the role I played, one or two with my picture, and I've been asked to write articles on my coaching experiences as though I had never done anything else worthwhile in my life. I got fed up long ago, and now uh, and no, I have not yet heard the last of it. The subject may wind up in my obituary, which I guess it kind of is here uh, <laughs> when we're talking about it so many years later. So, he, I mean, it shows you what a legacy he had. He lived to be 80, which in that era is really astounding. Right. It's pretty impressive. He, he did live in Philadelphia, so it's a good thing he was not a football coach. The time that he was a life insurance salesman, he was in Philadelphia. He was not a a football coach in Philadelphia, because that would probably shorten your life a lot. Oh, yes. And it uh, sounds like he's a little bit like Alec Guinness, where he did all this other wonderful stuff, but there's so many people that only remembered him for Star Wars, and he hated Star Wars. That's a great analogy. It's just interesting to see that Purdue's nascent football program way back in the day, he was able to get as much success as he could, as he could out of them, because you know I'm not sure how well... Butler was prepared that year, how much better they were on paper, or if they were like a local power or something, to be able to teach uh, the game of football in the span of a week and have them actually be pretty good, uh, at least going moving forward, is quite the accomplishment. I mean, you could call him like the Papa Bear Hallis of Purdue football in a way. Yes, in a way. And, uh, you know, it, it's just good, and I, I also wrote a little bit about him myself a couple of years ago, last year at this time, when I wrote an article about coaching fashion and how it had changed over the years for Purdue. I uh, found the one picture of him, which is the one on his Wikipedia page with essentially a hat, and I closed it with, I would still take him over Daryl Hazel and John Shoup. It has the um, Homer Simpson, Tom Landry's hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I was reading over this article here, and there's some other great characters that we can touch on very briefly uh, throughout the history of Purdue football. For example, we have Knowlton Ames, the Purdue coach uh, in, it uh, looks like, 1891. Uh, the teams, he was the one that coached Purdue when it, in the 44 nothing defeat of Wabash that earned Purdue the nickname as the Boilermakers. Uh, he was 12-0 and in two years as Purdue's coach at age 23. He had the nickname of Snake, which is fantastic. Oh, I love it. And uh, he rushed for 62 touchdowns and scored an unofficial college football career record 730 points playing for Princeton in, from 1886 to 1889. It's amazing how Princeton was the juggernaut of all college football back then. And how Rutgers didn't do anything after playing the first game against Princeton. And also, we have Knowlton Ames started the Indiana series back in 1891, beat Indiana 60-0 and 68 to nothing in the first two games of the Indiana-Purdue football series, and Purdue has not trailed in the all-time series since. There, you know, this podcast, there is never ever too much Indiana schadenfreude. <laughs> well, it's Indiana football. I mean... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's it's just passing time until basketball practice starts. 
Um, you know, getting back to that that George Aids quote when he says, "Take charge of the halt." What is what are what is the halt? What is that slang for? Uh, I am not sure exactly what that would be. I'm not completely averse on my 1887 slang. Um, I, I just you got on the trolley, man. Yeah, <laughs> give me five bees for a do- for a quarter. <laughs> well, you know, I did look up his salary on the inflation calculator. Oh, okay. So a dollar per lesson. It is worth $25.80 today. Well, there you go. All right. That's a Starbucks gift card with some change. <laughs> yeah, uh, endowment salaries have gone up significantly since then, but... Yeah. The cradle of quarterbacks had to begin somewhere. <laughs> so, a couple of other re- characters here. You have Albert Herrnstein. Uh, Purdue's coach in 1905, leading Purdue to a 6-1-1 record before Ohio State hired him. And he scored five touchdowns and an 86 to nothing win for Michigan over the Buckeyes. Wow. And Purdue hired him away from the Haskell Indian School. Oh, isn't that where Jim Thorpe went? I believe so, yes. I believe that is uh, Jim, Jim Thorpe's uh, alma mater. And Ohio State fans still thought they should have gotten in the playoff that year, even after that loss. <laughs> Boom! He was followed by Myram Witham in 1906 and Lee Turner in 1907, both of whom went 0-5, and over those two seasons, Purdue scored a grand total of 15 points in 10 games, which would be our longest losing streak in program history until Daryl Hazel lost 10 in a row. Uh, a couple of other interesting ones here. Uh, one of my personal favorites, William H. Dietz. Uh, looked like a fat Babe Ruth. <laughs> I like him already. Say, yeah. Uh, he coached Purdue to a 1-6 record in 1921 before he was fired for, illegally recruit, for illegal recruiting. And then he long claimed to be of Native American heritage when there's a very, very good chance that he was not of Native American heritage. <laughs> and uh, he also had all kinds of other coaching stuff. I had a lot of interesting scandals. Yes, he, he was full of tons of scandals. Uh, he promoted himself as Lone Star Dietz <laughs> after James One Star, the alleged nephew of an Oglala Buffalo Bill performer sometime after the 1904 World's Fair. So we're all the way back to the 1904 World's Fair there. <laughs> oh, that and that goes back to the original topic of our first Let's Get Weird Sports. Yes. Uh, so, Deets, is, that, um, is that a ska band? Is that uh, a porn star? Is that... That's just... That's quite an interesting name. You could take it all kinds of different directions. Yeah, and he, he coached at Washington State and won a Rose Bowl in 1915 before ending up at Purdue in 1921. So, uh, a lot of great um, characters in the long and illustrious history of Purdue football. Oh, yes. Uh, it, so we that would be the only time, I believe, that we've had any sort of recruiting violations uh, that have caused us issues over the years. and. Obviously, if you're going one and six, you're not very good at committing one at recruiting violation. Yeah, if you're going to cheat, you better at least be good. Exactly. 
And, and that is really all I have in terms of uh, interesting characters because, uh, you know, then, then we're getting into the Jim Colettos and the Fred Akerses and the Leon Burtnett, which the picture that I have here for Leon Burtnett, he looks exactly like Saul Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say is the, is the most, you said you've been at the most um, gut-wrenching Purdue basketball and Purdue football loss. What was the football when you were out? Oh, it's got to be the fumble uh, against Wisconsin, especially considering the tailspin it sent the program in for the next uh, 13 years. (laughs) I mean, you're talking about something where Purdue legitimately was in the race for a football national championship, had, had a guy that was possibly going to win the Heisman Trophy that year, and then one play starts a downfall that leads to eventually a one and 11 season. That was probably the worst in school history just nine years later. I mean, it, it just, it was a steady downfall and it's hard to believe that that one play may have caused all of that. It's it's so strange. (laughs) No, there's, a lot of times that's how it goes. There are, you can point to momentum shifts. I mean, Northwestern in 2013, when they, in 2012, they had the first bowl win in a half century and they were 4-0. They hosted ESPN College game day and Ohio State came in. And when that game turns, the season turns and they didn't get back to a bowl game for two years. Yeah. And it's, it's just interesting to see that. And you know, I'm glad that we're finally pulling out of that, and I have no delusions that Purdue's ever going to win a national title in football in my lifetime because it's just so difficult to do in college football unless you're like one of the, you know, just upper echelon ten or fifteen teams. It's really, really, really difficult to break into that group. But I, I would be pleased with another Big Ten championship. Uh, or two in my lifetime because well we only have eight of them and we have one in the last 50 years so i'm not going to get greedy in that regard you uh, you ought to have some good things purdue ought to have some good things in their life (laughs) so uh that that was mostly what we had on albert berg as we said it was a short one and uh probably what we could do with this one is you said you had a small excerpt of your book uh, to share with the listeners out there before we sign off today. Yes, my book, No, I Can't Get You Free Tickets, Lessons Learned from a Life in the Sports Media Industry, is available on Amazon, both in paperback and Kindle, and it just came out yesterday. So this is my very first media appearance in support of it. Yes, and uh, I have, I am very honored that I was able to provide a book jacket quote for this book and uh the it reads as follows paul has seen the highest of highs of a world series at wrigley field and the lowest of lows of illinois losing at home to a daryl coached daryl hazel coached purdue team you need to read his book because anyone who's been into both of those and anywhere in between has some great stories thank you very much for doing that i really appreciate it and i can check that off and the hey i'm a book jacket quote writer now Yeah, I'm still figuring out the way to get all the quotes, uh, the advanced praise onto the Amazon profile, because I'm sure once I do, that'll get the old uh, bestsellers ranking going up there. But you were um, my choice for the internet. I've got got one 
print, one television, one radio, um, one that's uh, internet and TV, and then internet only. And uh, I came to you. Awesome. Well, that's that's wonderful. And uh, you know, I I think uh, just you know, guessing here, it might become the greatest bestseller in human history, passing the Bible. I mean, hopefully in fifty years. In, in 50 years, maybe the Gideons will be leaving this in hotel drawers. There, yeah, there's a very distinct possibility of that. I mean, I'm, I'm going to duck lightning right here because, you know, it all starts here. This is the turning point. <laughs> I'm going to duck lightning bolts right now because. <laughs> <laughs> and Juan chimes in with smack my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, Juan was, I believe, the second confirmed buy. So awesome! That's fantastic. You know, all, all, all blizzards begin with one snowflake. <laughs> but um, we have actually two previous episodes of the Let's Get Weird Sportscast were based on articles that I had written. The uh, Manchester United bomb scare. And the Illinois Playboy Mansion New Year's Eve party ahead of the 84 Rose Bowl. So those were adapted for the book. So that's in there. There's also uh, two Purdue-specific, I don't want to say chapters. The book is divided into five major sections. And then within that, there's articles or essays, you know, really, really short chapters. But uh, in the travel section, I documented my first ever experience at Mackey and uh, the headline is Purdue basketball's home Mackey arena top 10 nationally in the college hoops experience. And then in the interview section um, that has Matt painter when he went through that whole historical coaching carousel that brought him to Purdue. This um, actually came up at the big 10 ACC challenge a couple of years ago after after they beat Louisville uh, and he reflected on just how the world spun around and all these weird things kind of fell into place where with Bruce Weber and Roy Williams and Bill self. So, so yeah, so that's in there, uh, Purdue fans, but, um, that's not the reading that I'm going to do today. <laughs> um, the reading is about another weird experience and it's something, uh, like I said, on this show, there's never enough you can never make Indiana look bad enough. <laughs> yes, you're, you're no, you know exactly how to play to our listeners. <laughs> yeah, I think I, you got to play to the house that you're in. Um, <laughs> so, so the interview um, section, I begin with a subsection of like the absolute worst. Because um, the section is about the greatest interviews, the most interesting ones. But I begin with the stuff that went wrong. And there's some names in there you would expect, and there's some you wouldn't. Like, you know, like the times Latan Ibrahimovic made us wait for 55 minutes, or Bo Jackson was surly and made a Ted Koppel reference to me. And I'm like, uh, you want to update your media pop culture references there? Because <laughs> this was three years ago. And I'm like, okay. But um, anyway, this one is entitled. Everyone has a Bob Knight is a dick story, so here's mine. Whenever Bob Knight is trending in the Twitterverse and sports blogosphere, really I don't know why one is a verse and the other a sphere, 
The message boards light up with comments about what a jerk night is, and many speak from firsthand experience. So here goes mine from February of 2011. And all I can say is that he certainly lived up to the prickish hype and all his stereotypes. Yeah, I know, Otis. <laughs> Otis, is, Otis is getting upset already. Ot like, Otis is like, hell yeah, preach. He's like, you hurt my who dad, my human dad. Okay. <laughs> my very brief but exceedingly memorable conversation with Bob Knight featured ultra-militaristic imagery, lack of interest in speaking with the media, and Bob Knight being... Not very friendly and accommodating. So These Bob Knight being Bob Knight. Of course, if you're a fan of the Indiana Hoosiers, you view the coaching legend with the college basketball victories record in a far more positive light. I guess it's fitting I caught up to him in the Hoosier State, specifically in Purcell Pavilion at the Joy Center on the Notre Dame campus, following what was easily the most exciting basketball game that I covered during the 2010-2011 season. For whatever reason, Louisville coach Rick Pitino decided to shun basic protocol and media courtesy by electing not to come to the press conference room. Pitino was long gone when most of us got to the spot, spot outside the locker room where he supposedly had been. So I wasn't in the greatest of moods myself before seeing Knight surrounded by a cadre of U.S. Marine Corps members near midcourt. After missing Pitino, I thought to myself, well, can you at least interview one coaching legend who made a cameo in the 1992 film Blue Chips tonight? <laughs> Knight made the group of Marines surrounding him chuckle with an anecdote that started before I arrived, but ended with, Oh, people say you were in the Marines? I say no. But the way you coached, people think you were. <laughs> I tried to do a Bob Knight voice. I don't know. I guess you had to be there. <laughs> I'll work on my Bob Knight voice for, you know, when, when I take the sack to a Barnes and Noble or something. <laughs> As he shook hands with all the Marines, one of them told Knight, you're a model American. Oh, geez. I think otherwise, but the general is playing to his target audience. His militaristic and jingoistic Weltanschung Maybe anathema to me, but many people serving in the armed forces do love him, as do civilians who are politically to the right of Genghis Khan. <laughs> wow. Knight coached at Army and embodied a leadership style so hardline that it could make Woody Hayes seem like Big Gay Al on South Park. Knight was 71 years old at the time of our meeting, but the old Ohio State Buckeye is still very physically imposing. And his six-foot-four presence truly commands the room. Perhaps I caught him at the wrong time, as he was in a rush to leave. Would that explain his brusqueness? I asked him if he had time to talk, to, and he said his time was limited, but he was open to it. Me. Do you think the Big East is the best conference in college basketball? Knight. Yeah, I think there are more good teams in the Big East than anywhere else. But you got to keep in mind there are 16 or 17 teams in the Big East, too. But it's the toughest league to play through because you're going to play somebody every good time. What do they play? 18 games in the league? You know a team could be 12 and 6 and be a really good team in that league. As I started my second question, he said, I think you got enough, and slapped me on the back. Not especially hard, but definitely not lightly either. 
I didn't think much about how he touched me at the time, but in today's world where anybody could blow anything they want out of proportion, Bobby Knight physically assaulted me. (laughs) If you have an extremely loose, i.e. inaccurate definition of that word, you can see that he committed assault. I remember he ended the conversation with a half-playful smirk, but I could be wrong. Perhaps he was not even being playful at all in the, in the most remote. In short, the exchange was even colder than the weather. It was one, literally one degree, when I walked in my car outside Notre Dame's home arena. Night is the anti-Ernie Banks when it comes to congeniality. Mike Krzyzewski went on to break Knight's all-time victories record, and that's definitely a positive because every time I've conversed with Coach K, I've found him to be rather charming. Sure, he does it by design because he knows the cameras are rolling, so it may not be all that authentic, but at least K is professional, polite, and approachable. So I close with, here are the questions I didn't get to ask Mr. Bob Knight that day. Did you see the NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation? Oh, dear. (laughs) What did you think of how they spoofed you? What are your thoughts on being known as the all-time hard-line, tough-love type of leader? Why is Notre Dame this good and surpassing everyone's expectations? Oh, here's one that aged really, really well. Is Tom Crean going to finally turn that Indiana program around? I think the only one that you're missing is, are you still sick and tired of losing to Purdue? Knight was one of college basketball's most polarizing coaches. He's infamous for throwing a chair across the court during a game, was once arrested for assault, and usually displayed condescension, aloofness, and sometimes outright hostility to the press. My experience reminded me of his signature quote about sports writers. All of us learn to write in the second grade. Most of, us go, most of us go on to do greater things. In other words, interviewing celebrity athletes is not all glitz and glamour like many believe it is. What goes on behind the scenes can often be a misadventure, to say the least. That's quite impressive. And uh, let's, let's also not forget that he once, I believe he said that uh, sports journalism is one step above prostitution. Yes, that was the other quote about writers that um, I was thinking of. <laughs> so, so Bobby Knight, surprisingly I, an asshole. <laughs> you have to admit, like that was a very on-brand experience. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's kind of sad to see because I know he had an appearance last month. Uh, I believe it was at Center Grove High School, and uh, it, it was pretty obvious he's in some uh, decline right now. It, it still doesn't take away from the fact that he's just. He's a raging hole. I mean, this man doesn't seem to have ever had a happy moment in his life. Yeah, I just don't get, I mean, he's a little, I mean, I'm well aware of him from his heydays a little bit before my time, though. Like, I honestly don't, I, I remember the Indiana teams, like, that would be one first round out, but I just don't, maybe you can explain to me, like, why he was essentially the governor of the state of Indiana for all the success. I mean, I know what he accomplished and everything, but... Three national titles in 11 years, and when they won the title in 87, I was... Let's see, I was about seven and a half years old. So that was kind of the height of just the the cult of personality they had around him. And I would say 
between 87 and I believe they made the final four again in 92. And then I think they were, uh, they were a number one seed in either 93 or 94. Uh, but, uh, just in that span, it was, they were constantly among the nation's best and it was the height of the Gene versus Bobby Knight rivalry. It was Gene was good and Purdue was good, but they got it done in March and, they were always just a great team that they were a threat to win the national title every season. And he was recruiting just the absolute best players from the state. And he was getting it done and famously graduating players and quote unquote, doing it the right way without paying players or anything else. And I don't think it was in this era of the internet where every tiny little thing was examined and re-examined and getting out, you know, you heard the, you heard about things, you heard about, you know, obviously him assaulting the police officer down in Puerto Rico and everything else, and he was notably prickly in press conferences or anything, but there was no Twitter, there was no internet. It was, his reports were few and far between, and it was more, okay, is Indiana still winning? And winning covered a lot of those sins, really, from, for a good 15, 20 years. I think you definitely did a perfect job of explaining to me how he is an asshole. He was an asshole. He's always been an asshole, but it's just covered up. Not just like how it could be, because I mean, how many times and with good reason, the Tom Izzo comparisons, but because that image of Izzo just seething red at Aaron Henry was everywhere. That was the story of the first weekend of the tournament. Mm-hmm. Now, if Knight, if he had lived in that era, because I mean, and I'm like, that's just a week after I heard at the Big Ten tournament, we could anybody sitting in the first few rows could hear Izzo drop an f bomb on a oh, different yeah. player, and they're up by ten points with a minute to go. It's like settle down, you. Well. I mean, the, these coaches aren't saints. <laughs> I mean, I mean, e- even Painter has uh, had some choice words courtside that I've heard and everything else. And I, I just don't think it's a big deal. Like what Izzo did, whoop-de-doo. I mean, so we got onto a player like that. It's, I, I don't think it's nearly as bad as some of the things that Knight did. And the other factor in that is the state of Indiana, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s, early 90s, basketball absolutely was king from November to March. I mean, this is an era when the Pacers, the professional team, were probably the third biggest basketball story every year because you had what what was IU doing and, to a lesser extent, Purdue, and what was the Indiana High School tournament doing? I mean, in 1991... Or no, 1990, excuse me, right at the height of this, they moved the Indiana High School Basketball State Finals to the RCA Dome because the Pacers Arena was too small. And they had 41,000 people at a high school basketball game for Damon Bailey, a guy that Bob Knight eventually got, who was the all-time leading scorer in state history. That's how crazy it was then here. Wow, that's, that, that is definitely on par with football and prep football in Texas. And then and then the next year, 1991, your state championship game was 
Glenn Robinson, Mr. Basketball, going to Purdue, and Gary Roosevelt playing against Allen Henderson, who set all kinds of records and was a great player for Indiana playing for Burbuff High School. And that was your state championship game. So a lot of people in this state treated it like it was a uh, it was a uh, rare blessing of a third Indiana versus Purdue game that year. All right. Well, we we just got the word from our producer to start wrapping things up, and uh, that is a good place down. to kind of leave it, I think, too. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as I said earlier in the podcast, in your introduction, we'll try to make these a little bit more regular here over the uh, late spring, early summer, until we get into some football and everything else. But we do thank you for listening. We thank you for being subscribers to the brand new Hammer and Rails Podcast Network. As we are now on Stitcher, iTunes, uh, pretty much anywhere that you can get podcasts. Guy running out of a computer, running out of an IT room with a floppy disk to put in your computer. Wherever you can get your podcasts, you can listen to it through us. So we do appreciate you for listening, and once again, we thank Juan for recording everything and producing things behind the scenes. And well, thank you, Juan. You are the intellectual and moral conscience of this podcast. <laughs> it's not a joke. I'm serious. Yes. So for Juan and Paul and myself, this is T. Mill uh, saying goodbye. And let's stay getting weird. Otis, do you have anything to say? No, nah, he's done. <laughs>